welcome. Okay, Lord. You know, I got to tell you, I, I've been learning over the last couple months. You know, don't say tomorrow I'll do such and such, but say if the Lord wills. Okay, Lord. So, I, my name is Matt. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Canvas, if you are visiting. Uh, we're glad that you're here. In fact, we're thrilled that you're here. We hope you do fill out that comment card. We actually do pray for our visitors. We're in the midst of a 15-week series where we are walking through the Gospel of John. And um, in that, the, the Gospel of John is like a, it's like a tapestry with many threads that, that go through the Gospel and, and they come together to paint an incredible picture. And we could, we could explore the Gospel of John in a lot of ways. We could follow the thread of light, which, which kind of weaves through the whole Gospel, what John does with light and what Jesus does with light. We could do the same thing with life. Uh, we could do the four discourses of Jesus through the Gospel of John. In fact, the, the miracle, the sign that I'm going to talk about today sets the course, it sets the, the scene for his first discourse. And I wish I had about eight messages just for this story of the Pool of Bethesda and that, that incredible discourse. Um, but we have chosen to walk through the Gospel of John by looking at the intentional seven signs, the seven miracles that John identifies, and the seven self-disclosures by Jesus, the I Am statements that he makes. So that gives the context for those of you who haven't been walking with us. We are in the third miracle. It's uh, John 5, 1 through 15, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that. But for those of you who are here on a regular basis, please, 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 between our sermons, read the rest of John. I mean, we're not going to even touch John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whosoever believes shall not perish, but have ever. I mean, it's it's the one verse that someone stands at the back of the end zone and holds up the you know John three sixteen. So there's so much good stuff, but we're going to walk through this intentional structure, this thread that John does in his gospel around the seven signs and the seven miracles, or I'm sorry, the seven I am statements of Jesus. Okay. There we go. So we're on the third sign. The first one, if you recall, two weeks ago is water into wine. Ryan did a great job with that. The second one, Corey dealt with the healing of the official son. And on this one, it is a, a cripple, a, a, an invalid for 38 years who Jesus heals at the pool of Bethesda. We suspect that this is probably in the second year of Jesus' ministry in kind of a chronological order. Uh, Jesus, his ministry was three years before he was crucified, and, and he's in the beginning of the second one. And as we go through this and we talk about this, this man who has been crippled for 38 years that Jesus meets, I'm going to name him Fred. We don't know what his name is. It's not given to us. But I think it will be important as we walk through this that we name him rather than call him the invalid. Because I'm convinced that to internalize anything but the beloved of God as my identity becomes problematic. And some of us internalize our disease, our dysfunction, our role, all kinds of stuff. 
And we need to come back to, and you're gonna, you've heard me say that before, you're going to hear me say it five or six times in this message, because this message has a lot to do with identity and how Jesus meets us. And so, walk with me as we talk about bread. Okay? So, this is the third sign. It's the third sign in the midst of many, 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 many miracles that Jesus does. And John tips his hat to the fact that there are many miracles. In fact, this particular verse, it shows up between miracle one and miracle two. So miracle one, Jesus is up in the north. He's up in the region of Galilee, up at Cana. And then uh, uh, miracle two, he's up there again. But between that, he walks almost the whole length of the country, and he gets down to Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem, and, and, and there they see, what does it say here? Many signs he was performing. So John does not tell us all of them, but John spit, picks seven specific signs to answer his purpose for writing this gospel, and he tells us his purpose. You should all know it by now. We've gone over it a couple times. In fact, if you're going to memorize a verse in the Gospel of John, this is probably the one to memorize. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's John's purpose. Now, my hat's off to both Ryan and Corey. Um, John is a masterful layering um, in many ways, John is written in third-grade language with Ph.D. meaning. In fact, for new uh, students of Greek, if we're going to learn Greek from the text, we go to the Gospel of John because it's kind of see-dick-run kind of language. It's really, it's, it's not a lot of vocabulary. It's pretty simple. It's repetitive vocabulary. But all the great commentaries in the Gospel of John don't end up being written until the, the scholars come to the twilight of their ministry. And after decades of studying the scriptures, they finally think, ah, maybe I can give this one a shot. And while Ryan and Corey introduced us to the intricacies, the, the, the layered aspects of this gospel, they took us into the PhD meaning of, of the text. I'm going to take a slightly different approach. I'm going to take the third grade approach today. I'm going to talk about you. Because I am convinced that, that John chose several different signs to let you know that whoever you are, Jesus wants to offer you life. It is not God's will that any should perish. It's God's will that how many perish? None. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. By the way, did I mention that all? He wants all to come to repentance. And as we walk through these signs, we'll see three different realities that Jesus encounters, Jesus ministers in, and Jesus brings salvation, he brings healing, he brings, he brings life. Uh, the first one was water to wine, and then that one, Ryan helped us understand that, that Jesus reaches the ashamed. Remember he told us that the, 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 the groom ran out of wine, and in that culture, that's a shameful thing to do at the wedding. And Jesus stepped in and filled up vats, had them fill up vats of water, and as they took the water out, it, it, it miraculously became wine. Jesus saves the ashamed. The next one that Corey talked about is the, the official son, and 
while the son gets healed, he's really not the, the center of the story. The center of the story is Jesus and the official. The official who walks across the whole region of Galilee to plead before Jesus for his son, the desperate. And then when Jesus says, it's done, go home, he obeys and he goes home and he finds on his way home that, that Jesus has done this. His son is healed the very moment that Jesus said that he's healed. So Jesus saves the ashamed. He saves the desperate. But he also saves the hopeless. And Fred? Well, Fred's hopeless. Fred is the hopeless. So I want to tell you a little bit about what is going on here. Um, by the way, if, if you really like to take lots of notes or you like notes, uh, my sermon today is somewhat content-heavy. Uh, usually I like images and to do a lot of teaching. And so I printed out 20 or some copies of my notes. They're back uh, right right next to, before you put your offering in the box, you can just take a take a set of notes. And if, if more people want them, we can put them online. We usually post that stuff anyways. So, in this context, they're near Jerusalem, so they've gone from the north down to the south, back up to the north, and now at some point they've found their way, Jesus has found his way back to Jerusalem, and it's doing during a festival. This is important because while Fred probably lived near this pool of Bethesda, during the festival, the, the um, Jerusalem would swell from about 120,000 people to somewhere between three and four. 500,000 people. There were three to four times as many people, three times a year, three festivals. Every male over a certain age, every Jewish male over a certain age was required to go to Jerusalem for this festival. And so it would swell. And these were people who were, were expectant of religious experiences. They realized that they were going there to do some a religious obligation that the law had called them to do. And so in a very real sense, the, the pool here is, is, and Jerusalem is, it's flooded with people who, who are looking to be generous. This is alms heaven. And the pool is kind of miracle central. There's probably a lot more people than are normally there. Someone comes with a hangnail and says, hey, maybe I can get it fixed over there. So everyone's showing up. So Fred's there all the time, but extra people are showing up. Second, they're at a place where people believe in miracles. In verse 7, the scripture tells us that Fred, as well as everyone gathered around, lots of people, believed that when the water stirred, that the first one in won the miracle. By the way, the scriptures do not tell us that that is what actually happens. That's superstition. It just tells us that these are people who believe in the miraculous. They're looking for God to do something amazing. Three, Fred has been an invalid. He's been crippled for most of his life. You know, Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we see in Fred... Someone sitting at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. Sitting at the house of mercy. With not just a cripple, but a sick soul. These last two months, um, 
I've just had all kinds of stuff going wrong in my body. Um, I asked a question of one of our medical personnel here this morning, and um, she said, well, you know, Matt, you're reaching expiration date. Just so you know, if you're reading, if you're up in your reading, those sell-by dates, they originally came from when the, the maker of whatever they were selling thought it would be at its prime. So, I'm at my prime sell-by date. Just FYI. So, so anyways, the last two months, um, I, I had to go to a podiatrist and get a shot in my foot, and because my heel was hurting or messed up, and I, when I did my running up hills, I messed up my knee, and so now I'm meeting with a PT for a while, and in the midst of all that, I had to go to a GI doctor, and, and all of this has messed up my fall plans. Um, this is not what I had planned. And it not only messed up my fall plans, but, but it altered my lifestyle. There are certain things that I do. You know, I wear this Fitbit. And if you saw my Fitbit now versus three months ago, it's, it's pathetic. I mean, I walking down the stairs, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm past my expiration date. And so I'm sitting in my, my lazy boy chair in my apartment, and I'm having a pity party over the fact that I'm going through these tests and I can't have any dairy for two weeks. And I think, oh, I should probably do something. I, you know, have you ever just sat and, like, you did nothing? And all the while you're thinking, like, I should do this, 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 and this. Ugh, I'll do nothing. So I finally convinced myself I should get up and start working on my message again. And I get up and I start reading this. And I just start laughing. I'm thinking, man, I'm depressed because I can't have cream in my coffee. And this guy hasn't walked for 38 years. Fred. It's hopeless. Fred tells us not only that, that he's hopeless, but that he's isolated in a crowd of peers. When Jesus asks him a question, his response is, I have no one. Literally what he says, verse 7, I have no one. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirs. You do realize that in creation, which was before the fall, perfect. There is one place where God in his perfect creation still says, before humans fell, says it is not good. And it was a place where he realized we just made one, and he said, it is not good that human is alone. And he made Adam and Eve. That there is, we are wired to be in community. And Fred is alone. You know, there's another story in the scriptures about a man very similar to Fred, in that he can't walk. And Jesus shows up in his town. And when Jesus shows up in his town, we'll call him Bob. Bob's buddies realize that Jesus, the healer, is in town, and so they all get together. I don't know how, you know, they didn't, they couldn't text each other. I don't know if they sent up smoke signals, or, but they got together, and they found a stretcher, and they put Bob on the stretcher to take him to Jesus to get healed. They get there, and, and it's like all of you are crowded around the front here, and they can't get into the house that Jesus is at. So they walk around to the back of the house, they crawl up onto the guy's roof with the stretcher. They break a hole in the roof big enough for a guy lying down to be lowered down to Jesus. This guy, Bob, I mean, he had a community. That's not Fred. Fred's alone. Fred's hopeless. 
And the last thing we take from this is he is superstitious, and we'll say more about that later. So Jesus responds. He asks a question. Jesus often asks questions. Do you want to get well? By the way, it's a great question. Uh, in, in psychology today, we, we recognize one of the things that Jesus was looking at is secondary gain. The psychology dictionary calls secondary gain a social, occupational, or interpersonal advantage through a disability. I get money, or I get benefits, or I get attention. And it, and it really is not worth the, the disability, but someone who is hopeless in their either their disability or their dysfunction will sometimes remain in their dysfunction because they want that secondary gain. It gives me a place. It gives me uh, attention. And Jesus is asking, do you want to be healed? Identity placed in anything other than the beloved of God is problematic. We can place it in our job, but if you place it in something you can lose, it's a dangerous thing. I don't know how many uh, couples I've, I've worked with who their last child leaves the house. They're, you know, they're, they're thinking that they're, they're child-free now, and actually what they are is an identity crisis because they've placed that identity in being mom or being dad or being parent, and now I, what do I do? Who am I? What does this mean for me? We can place identity in disability, in, in sexual desires, in education. When I was at the seminary, oh my word, I mean, these were incredibly intelligent people, my colleagues. I mean, you know, just blew me away. And, but but when, you, when you become unbelievably intelligent in a very narrow slice of life, and you spend so much time in it, the temptation, the, the danger is that you begin to attach your identity to this thin slice of life. That's why it was not uncommon in, in, in academic circles. The question was, well, what's your degree? Oh, you don't have a doctorate. Oh, your doctorate is just a D-min. I have a D-min. I'm low man on the totem pole. You don't even have a DED, a doctor of education. I mean, PhD, that's, that's the gold standard. That's where you want to be. But then I, I watch colleagues even, you know, okay, we have all PhDs, so where did you study at? I actually saw, too, they studied at the same place, and the next question was, oh, who did you study under? And it's when the identity begins to get, to get connected to this thing. Do you know, do you know uh, that John never calls himself John in the Gospel of John? What does he call himself? Yeah, the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved of God, the beloved of Jesus. I think he had it down. So I was um, recently read a, a, a book by Andy Dunn when he exited Stanford Business School. Um, he launched the first company to fully build a brand online. It was Bonobo Pants back then, now it's Bonobo Clothes. He eventually sold it for just under a billion dollars to Walmart. And, um, and the book, Burn Rate, is about his building of the company. And second parallel story is his dealing with his bipolar diagnosis. And the constant train wrecks and, and, and rescues and train wrecks and rescues and that whole journey. But in that book, he says something that is profound. He says, when someone says... 
someone is bipolar rather than has a bipolar disorder, it's like saying someone is cancer. Do you want to get well? It's Jesus' beginning question. And by the way, you'll see that, that this man doesn't actually answer that question. Because Fred's hopeless. Fred is beyond even able to answer that question. Did you know that often when Jesus asks a question, either in the scriptures or to you personally in your own quiet time, he's not looking for an answer. What he's looking for is self-reflection. Jesus will ask a question because he wants you to do business with you. He wants you to present the real you to the real Jesus, that the real you might be healed, might be touched, might be transformed, might be encouraged, might be loved, might be blessed. Health can bring responsibility. Now, half of you in the room probably aren't old enough to remember the ditty. I never shopped at Toys R Us, but I can remember the song. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I mean, there is this, I don't want to grow up. Because health does come with some level of responsibility. Too much is given, much is required. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's Jesus' question. Okay, so Jesus, I'm sorry, Fred's response, and it's classic hopelessness. The first thing he does is he hears, do you want to be healed? And instead of answering that question, he answers the question, if you've been here for 38 years, how come you're not healed yet? He says, how can I be healed? I mean, when when, when the water stirs, I have no one to take me down there. I don't know about you, but but I have, um, I've engaged in self-blaming behavior. Sometimes those tapes that we take in, you you do realize that that all of life, and and by the way, I realize I did this to my kids some, and I I guess every, most parents do at some point, um, we live in so many leading and judgmental questions that we come to a place where we download those questions into our brain and we press autoplay. And they just keep playing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what this man needs is healed of that in addition to his crippled legs. He says, I'm alone. No one cares enough. He has stayed there, but he's quit. And and sitting by the house of mercy has no longer become a search for hope, but rather an identity. It's who I am. I just sit here. And he can't even answer the question, do you want to be well? I, I don't know how many of you have walked in that level of hopelessness. I suspect there are some people here. I suspect many of us have, it, have at times. John wants to make sure we know that Jesus doesn't just heal, save, respond to the ashamed or the desperate but he'll come to the hopeless. There's a wonderful quote, again, from Andy Dunn. 
Depression functions best in the absence of hope. Yesterday I was reading through um, some articles in the Harvard Business Review for some writing I'm doing, and I encountered a term, sociologist, and I can't pronounce the person's name, uh, Arlie Hochschild, maybe some of you know, but coined the word emotional labor, and I identified with it in a minute. Uh, If you lead in anything, there is an emotional weight to that leading. There's an emotional labor that goes with life. And all of us lead somewhere. The, the greater your level of leadership, the, the more um, susceptible you are to a high level of emotional labor. And the reality is when we don't navigate our emotion or labor well, our soul begins to degrade. Am I making sense? You don't have to agree with me, but I mean, are you hearing me? That this emotional labor can degrade our, our very being. Fred had been 38 years at not just the disability, but the emotional labor of his disability. So last week I told you that um, at the end of December I'm going to the Philippines to work with Filipino and actually international pastors because there'll be some from Afghanistan and Nepal and India, most from the Philippines. And in there we find all the time that we get leaders whose soul has degraded, that, that they've entered into this process of Losing authenticity. And so I want to just quickly run you through a piece of a lecture that we, we do there because it touches here really well. And then we'll get back to Fred. So symptoms of losing authenticity. The very first symptom is I lose my inner strength. Outwardly, I'm dynamic. But, but something is missing. When we harden ourselves against the hurt that we feel, we become insensitive. We become ungrateful. We begin to address outward symptoms and avoid the heart issues. I've often said, if you have the fruit, you got the root. The reality is, folks, we're never going to kill the apple, crab apple tree that we don't want by picking the crab apples on the tree. We've got to get down to the root. We address outward symptoms and avoid heart issues. We hide that I no longer enjoy life. You know, Robin Williams was the most fun guy in the room until he committed suicide. Because we often hide. The second main symptom is I lose touch with my inner life. People see me as capable, but I know something's being neglected. Maybe they see the edge. Maybe not. I lose insight. I can't or won't see what I desperately need to see. The inner inner life hurts. And so I avoid it. The third symptom is I lose power to resist temptation. At this point, I begin to habituate my sin. Something's clearly wrong. I know it's wrong, but I look for opportunities to secretly do it. I make strategies. I'm losing my authenticity. I can no longer hide what's taking place. It's, it's like taking jello and trying to compress jello in your hand. 
And all that happens is it squeezes out in every crack that's there and makes a mess for someone else to clean up. I'm consumed by the bees. Be this. Be that. External expectations become mandates while internal ones, external from other people, become mandates while internal ones become ignored. ignored. And I oscillate between that frantic busyness and the, the couch paralysis. It's, it's a symptom of something going on. It's a symptom. I lose self-discipline. Personality becomes explosive. The pain of my inner life leads to being secretive. Folks, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Secrets grant power to your sinful nature to destroy you. So if you have secrets, find someone to take them from. Someone safe, someone respectable, someone honorable. Right? says, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. If, 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 well, you get it. Because if you don't, it's going to become a sinkhole of your soul that's just waiting to collapse. And it will. And the fourth symptom is I lose respect for the person that I am. I'm empty. Something's died. I'm focused on survival instead of feeling alive. I'm not sure I can love or I am lovable. I focus on escape. My inner life becomes destructive. People who arrive here are sometimes asking the question, is life worth living? By the way, if this is not connecting with you at all, praise God. Hallelujah. And do me a favor. Pray for those for whom it is connecting. Or have eyes to see your beloved brothers and sisters who are in our midst and some of whom are here. And be available and be willing to be a vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one's exempt. Next Sunday is um, National Physicians Suicide Awareness Day. Folks, don't be fooled by nice homes or cool pictures of cool places on Facebook. No one is exempt. The 2023 Medscape Physician Suicide Report that recently came out said one out of 10 have considered suicide and 40% of those who have have told, told no one at the time. Those who survived eventually came around to telling someone. Uh, a couple days ago, I was just reading a testimony of a physician who, in 2017, was minutes away from succeeding. And she writes, quote, I'm not the kind of person who would ever consider something like suicide. So I thought. Until I broke. And then she goes on to talk about the undescribed emotional pain. I know it's getting a little heavy. So um, my daughter <laughs> used to make this make this statement all the time when she was like eight, nine, ten years ago. She was in junior high or high school and apparently it was a video that had gone viral. I hadn't seen it and I asked her to show it to me. It's good for an illustration. I don't know that it was helpful for me to see it but it was these two incredibly gorgeous young blondes and they were talking about their life and one of them says hot girls got problems too. No one's exempt. By the way, 
sometimes the hot girl is the most lonely person in the world because all the guys view her as an object and all the females view her as competition. I've met many, many beautiful, lonely ladies because people wouldn't just treat them like a person. Fred desperately needs treated not like an invalid, but like a person. Okay. Behavior becomes addictive. I've given up. I'm homeless. Hopeless. And this is Fred. So let's go back to Fred. Jesus' second response to Fred is Jesus heals him. And I want you to watch what happens here. Because it's unbelievable. Jesus' healing of Fred precedes any recognizable faith. Jesus looked at him, said, get up, carry your mat. He was immediately healed, and so then he did it. There is no demonstration of faith on the part of Fred at this point. Now, if we go back to the first sign that John gives us, there's great faith by Mary in saying, listen to what my son says. There's great faith by these servants who dip their, their they, they fill the vats with water. They know their water. They dip their ladle in and they carry the water to the wine steward. I mean, they had to feel unbelievably stupid. Great faith to listen to what Jesus said. The, the, the official who walked across the region of Galilee to plead with Jesus to heal his son and then simply because he said, go back, he's healed, and turned around and did it. Unbelievable faith. But in this context, Fred had no faith to give. It took Jesus' faith. And based on Jesus' faith, because Jesus saw Fred and said, I'm going to do something. Now, here's, here's a takeaway for us, folks, by the way, because I know that all of you have, well, not, many of you have met Jesus in profound ways, wonderful ways, great ways. Be careful to universalize your experience with Jesus. It may take you to, to, to do something foolish, like dipping water out of a vat and taking it to someone, telling them it's wine. It may take walking across town to plead for Jesus to heal your son. It may take the faith of desperation. It may take the, the faith in the midst of, of a shameful situation. Or it may just take Jesus. Whatever your experience is, praise God for it. Testify to it. Just be careful not to require it of others. That's, by the way, the Pharisees' way. They make assumptions and require from there. And, and we're not saying that their assumptions were all wrong. They're just not universal. There's a difference there. Okay. The scriptures tell us that he had no idea when he was healed who Jesus was. And I'm, I'm going to read it. Quote, verse 13. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away. Jesus never confronted his superstition. Uh, in, in my many years of walking with Jesus, he'll often leave something that needs to be fixed untouched because he's working on something else. He'll get around to that. I mean, the Pharisees were the exact opposite. What are you doing carrying your mat? I mean, the guy just got healed after 38 years. What are you doing, Carrie? You can't do that. 
That's not Jesus' approach. It's just not. Jesus did later call for repentance. And note the stop sinning. Later, Jesus found him in the temple, said to him, See, you're well again. Now, stop sinning. So, so the reality is that, that um, sin takes you into a spiritual back alley where your soul might get mugged, and God doesn't want that. God gives hope to the hopeless. He doesn't give a path to sin. And then the same verse, but the second half of it, Jesus restored hope, and the man believed. Remember that this man was condemned by the religious leaders because he carried his mat, said, who, who told you to do this? He said, I don't know. But when he found out who it was, when Jesus confronted him, met him, talked to him, told him what not to do, he said yes to Jesus. He went and found his critics. But let me tell you who it was. It was Jesus. God saves. Folks, this is the God we serve. Sometimes you need to do something foolish, like drawing water out of a vat and take it to the wine steward just because he said, to do it. Sometimes you walk across the whole region of Galilee to desperately plead to Jesus to heal your son and then walk back home because he said to do it. And sometimes you're so hopeless that Jesus has to seek you out. Remember the story of all the sheep and one goes astray? And what does the shepherd do? Sometimes you're so hopeless that Jesus has to seek you out as you just sit by your hope or your house of mercy. So there are two smart bombs. Um, Donovan, if you can make your way to the front. There are two disciplines that um, the scriptures give us to, to really address the place of hopelessness. Uh, there, are, there are spiritual disciplines that are meant that we just do. I mean, coming to church, hearing the word preached, reading the word. There, there are things that we just do on a regular giving. There are things that we do on a regular basis to position ourselves before God for ongoing life, ongoing transformation, ongoing soul work, ongoing stuff inside of us. But then there are some disciplines that God gives us to get at something specific. And there are at least two for those who are hopeless, because I suspect there are some here for whom this resonated. The first is lament. And we're not going to do that today. We've done it in the past. But if you are in a place of, of a plague of hurt and it won't go away, and you want to lament, it's hard work, folks. You want to lament. I'm available. Call the office. We'll make an appointment. I'll walk you through lament. I'll give you stuff to do. And, and, and we'll, we'll watch Jesus meet you in lament. But there's a second discipline. There's a second exercise. There's a, a second smart bomb. And it's a discipline of praise. It sounds counterintuitive. But the Old Testament tells us to put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But there is something about praise and declaring who God is, what He does, 
that allows us to hear the voice of God even when we can't bring ourselves to believe it. I know there are some people who say, I'm not going to worship God unless I feel it. And I'm like, no, that's not God's economy. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart ends up. So one of the disciplines is praise. And so we're going to close our service with a time of, of praise. We're going to do that glad song, Be You Glad. And Donovan is going to sing over us. This is, this is the Zephaniah uh, chapter 3 type song. God has restored his children. He's brought them, them back. And, and he is no longer counting their sin against them. And in that, at the end of it, in, in verse 17, God says, And I will rejoice over you with singing. And so as Donovan does part of the song as a special song, it's, it's, uh, it's really God speaking to us. Hear the Lord. Allow it to be a moment to hear the Lord speaking over you, whatever your condition is. Uh, if you're in the dungeon, hear the, the gates rattling. And then when we come to the chorus, if you would like, I invite you to join in, be you glad, be you glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be you glad, be you glad, be you glad. You may assume whatever posture is helpful for you in positioning yourself before God. This is not a miracle pill. No, it's positioning ourselves before God in a way that the Scriptures tell us that He might be able to get at the stuff that's going on inside of us. Bring it up, get it out, and bring healing to our soul. Let's hear the Lord sing over us. In the days of confused situations, 